My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. As we get into this text, I want to start by asking you a question. How do you respond when you're in the presence of greatness? Or maybe it's just perceived greatness. I don't know, have any of you ever been in the presence of somebody famous or somebody who you considered to be great? Put your hand up nice and high. Presence of a famous person or somebody that is pretty well-known, a public figure. I would love to hear your stories. Because I love the awkwardness that happens when we are in the presence of greatness. Maybe you're totally cool and nothing happens to you. But I know me, I've had the chance to meet a few different public figures and, and notable famous people. And something internally always happens to me. In fact, last week I was at a pastor's conference with our staff where the speaker was, in my mind, he's a, he's a great person, he's a big public figure, he's a well-known pastor, he's been on the radio, on TV, he's podcasted, he's extremely well-known, and I've looked up to this pastor myself for a couple of years. Specifically, I followed him, he was pretty influential in me going into church planting. And so he was doing this conference here in the Twin Cities last week, and it was a small conference specifically for smaller church plants where we could engage with him. And so I and our staff showed up, and we got there kind of right at starting time, and everyone was mulling around, and there were two tables. It was in a basement, and there were tables set up. There were two tables open towards the front, one at one side, one at the other side. So we walk into the room, and we think, which table are we going to sit at? And I decided to go towards the far one because it was closer to the coffee and to the donuts. And so on to the far table we went, and as we got there, we noticed a bag and a Bible, just one bag on a chair and a Bible. We thought, oh, we can all fit here, and this poor person who's all alone, we can incorporate them throughout the day in this conference. And so we set our stuff down. I went off to go to the bathroom and to get coffee and donuts and come back, and the Park Community Church staff is sitting at the table with the main speaker, with this pastor who I've looked up to for years, and the seat next to him is open. That's my seat. My Bible's there. I think, oh, great. I'm going to have to engage with this pastor, with this public figure who I have this, I perceive him to be kind of this great figure in my mind. And I had a great time learning from him throughout the day and, and interacting with him. But I kind of had to search my own heart and think, what's going on in my heart? Why am I so, why am I so insecure? Why am I so aware of my own self? I'm thinking, am I asking him enough questions? Am I asking him the right questions? Does he think I'm cool? Does he think I'm a good pastor? Does he think I'm a good man? Does he respect me? All these things are going through my head. I think that's often how we interact with people that we perceive to be great. Whether it's your own, your own family member who you have a high level of respect for, maybe you haven't seen them for years, or whoever it may be. And I think perceived human greatness can easily breed in us pride and insecurity. We can feel inferior to the person, or we can try and make ourselves appear and seem superior to them. And I think what we're going to see in this text today, what I want us to see is that in the presence of true greatness, the greatness of God, there is a particular way to respond, and that's with humble worship. A proper way to respond to the presence of King Jesus is humble worship. See, in the presence of King Jesus, we don't need to be insecure. We don't need to puff ourselves up and make us look better than we are. We don't need to, to kind of, um, in pride, try and humble ourselves and make ourselves look more humble or lowly than we are by self-deprecating ourselves. In the presence of Jesus, we can come as we are and we respond once we engage with him, once we meet him with humble worship. Perceived greatness creates things in us that aren't natural, aren't godly, and aren't good for us, but true greatness the greatness of God, the greatness of King Jesus produces in us humble worship. 
That's what we see here in the text today. That's actually the application point. So we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But in order to get there, I want to help us to understand this text a little bit more because we, come, we, we become very familiar with these texts throughout the Christmas season. We hear of these, these wise men and King Herod and the star, and we kind of get inoculated to the Christmas story. And so I want to come through and I want, us to, I want to help us to understand this text before we then come back to this phrase and apply the text of what it looks like and really means to worship Jesus humbly. So let's understand the text. I want to see who these figures are, three primary figures. I want to look at Herod, I want to look at the wise men, and I want to look at the star, getting to know who they are and what they represent, how we can connect with them. There's a rendering of Herod, and here's a nice little Christmas card of the three wise men going, following the star to Bethlehem, right? And these, that, that image of the three wise men, that's kind of a familiar Christmas image for us, isn't it? It's not extremely accurate. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the, these are the images of Christmas. And Herod, let's start with him. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Okay, so he's the first person in this text that we run into that we need to begin to understand if, if this passage is going to fully come alive to us and if we're really going to understand what it means to worship the King Jesus with humility. First of all, we need to understand who's Herod. Is, is Jesus the king? Because this tells us right here that Herod is the king. And these wise men travel from afar and they go to Herod the king and they say, we want to meet Jesus, the king, the, the king who has been born, the king of the Jews. While Jesus was the prophesied king who would come and Jesus indeed did grow up to be a king. But at the moment, Herod is the king of Israel. He, he's the king of the Israelites. So he's appointed king over the Jews by Rome. Rome is ruling the modern world at this time. Rome has, Rome has a monopoly on world leadership, and so Rome appoints Herod as king of the Jews. So he is underneath the Roman Empire, underneath Roman rule, but they've given him some latitude. They've given him some authority to rule the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city of the Jews. In fact, Herod, he's, just the, he's, he's a ruthless king. He is known for killing anyone who poses a threat to him. Caesar Augustus, the, the, Ro the first Roman emperor, in fact, said about Herod, he said it's better to be a pig in the household of Herod than to be one of his own sons. Because Herod executed a few of his own sons for fear that they wanted his throne. In fact, he executed one of his wives as well because she thought, he thought that she was in cahoots with some of the sons to overthrow his kingship. This is Herod. He got into leadership. He got, he got named king of the Jews by cozying up to the Roman officials. Herod is likely half Jew, half Arab. He's ha half Hebrew. He has some Jewish ancestry, but also some Gentile ancestry. And so he's cozied up to the Roman rulers. Caesar Augustus, who was known as Octavian before he was known as Caesar Augustus, he became Caesar Augustus once he was put into power in Rome, and once he was the first emperor of Rome, he was Octavian. Octavian and Mark Anthony, not the singer and clothes designer, but one of the early leaders in Rome, they, they led Rome together, the Roman Republic. But they had a feud, and see if I can remember this right, Caesar Augustus was married, nope, Octavian, Let's see, who was married to who? They were brother-in-laws. One of them was married to the other one's sister. 
and he, it, he cheated on her with other people, and so there was this kind of family feud started between these two guys, and they had power, and power was getting to their head, and so essentially what happens is Octavian and Mark Anthony, they go to war with one another. Mark Anthony had fled to Egypt. He had enlisted some Egyptian soldiers and Cleopatra from Egypt, and these two fought it out. Herod sided with Mark Anthony. He thought Mark Anthony's going to win this battle because he's got the Egyptian help. He's got Cleopatra on his side. And so Herod sides with Mark Anthony. Herod is this guy who's hungry for power. He wants position. He wants prestige. He wants power. And so he's cozying up to Mark Anthony, thinking that that's my ticket to becoming king or to staying king of the Jews. If I want to rule over the Jewish people, I'm going to cozy up to Mark Anthony. So he does, and Mark Anthony loses the battle. Octavian wins, and then Octavian becomes the first emperor of Rome. And we know him as Caesar Augustus. We read about him later on in the Christmas story. Now, Herod is incredibly persuasive. He fought on Mark Anthony's side. He took Mark Anthony's side in this battle, and somehow, after he lost to Caesar Augustus, Herod cozied up to Caesar Augustus and got himself in power. He became king of the Jews. He remained king of the Jews underneath Caesar Augustus. So Caesar appointed Herod to oversee the Jewish people. That's when we read in verse 1, Herod, the king of the Jews. He was appointed by Caesar Augustus. He was appointed by the Roman officials, by the Roman Senate to rule the Jews. And he's just this ruthless figure, killing anyone and everyone in his way. Flip over to James chapter 3. Let's get the character of Herod in mind here. James chapter 3 is on page 1012 in the Pew Bible. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's the culture of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod is the king of the Jews. He is ruling them with bitter jealousy, with selfish ambition, with earthly wisdom, not wisdom from above, as verse 15 tells us, godly wisdom, but earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy, selfish ambition exists, there will be every disorder and vile practice. Jerusalem in the time of Jesus' birth. This is Herod's rule. I think it's helpful for us to understand what this king is like. And, and before we move on from the king, I think it's easy for us to, to be glad that we're not like Herod, right? But I think there's a little bit of Herod in each one of us. We don't have the power, we don't have the prestige, we don't have the ability to execute our will in the way that Herod did. But church, how do we respond when people threaten our position? How do we respond when, when we are concerned what people will think about us or when we may lose control of certain things? I think Herod perfectly represents the human race. He had power and ability and things at his disposal that most of us don't have at our disposal. But certainly we know the heart of man, don't we? That, that left to our own flesh, that when we sense threat, when we sense losing something near and dear to us, when we sense control being taken from us, 
we certainly have a tendency to respond to a lesser extent the way that Herod responds. By getting that threat out of our way, by moving it aside, by making sure that we don't lose command or control or position. And so, let's notice Herod. Let's not judge him too quickly. Let's remember that Jesus comes to save. And, but that's, that's Herod. Now let's move on and look at the wise men. So, that's Herod the king. And then, still in verse 1, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. This is where we get our Christmas song that many of us know, We Three Kings of Orient Are, and why there's always three wise men in the picture. We don't actually know. People think that there were three wise men because later in the story we see that they gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's no indication that there were actually three. We know that there was at least more than one because they're wise men. It's plural. So there was maybe two. There could have been up to 30. We don't know the number of men. So most of our Christmas images are, are wrong. They're just kind of folklore. But we know that these wise men came from the east. They came from the east of Jerusalem. And they came to Jerusalem. So the star appears in the sky. Let's talk about the wise men and the star. The star appears in the sky. We don't know what the star is. It could have been a supernova. It could have been a comet. It could have just been a supernatural thing that God did. He could have plucked a star out of the sky, held it for them, and moved it along. It could have been the Shekinah glory of God. It could have just been the supernatural thing. Somehow, God used nature, which he created, to lead these wise men from the east, west, towards where Jesus was born. These wise men were, were astrologers and astronomers. They were men of both faith and science. Now, oftentimes in our culture, in our day and age, we separate these two, right? Faith and science can't coexist. We, we're people of enlightenment thinking. But for the history of the world, faith and science kind of coexisted. They intermingled. And so these wise men here, they study the stars. They consider the signs. But they also are men of ancient religious texts. They, they weren't Jews, they weren't Israelites, but they knew the Jewish scriptures, at least in part. They probably interacted, and their, their family heritage interacted with the Jews when the Jews were in exile. These men could have been from Babylon or Persia. So they knew of the Jewish people, they knew of God's people, Israel, and they knew some of their texts. They knew that there was this star which was prophesied about in Micah that would lead people to Jesus, the Son. And so in these wise men, I think we need to notice that God calls people of all different cultures, of all different backgrounds, of all different religions to himself. He doesn't always use our normal mode of operation, our particular theologies and our church settings to lead people to his son Jesus. Here he takes pagan Gentile wise men who are looking at the stars searching for a sign, searching for a new Jewish king. He uses a star, he commands nature to draw the nations to himself. Who is this God, church? Think about that. He commands nature, he uses the star, whatever, whatever that was, and you can go research that. Some of you are like scientifically minded people. You really get caught up on what was the star? And does, does history prove the star outside of the Bible? You can follow that rabbit trail all you want. There's some really fascinating reads and research out there. However, I would just encourage you to remember the point of this text is not the star and what the star was and how the star worked. The point of this text is Jesus. And so as we look into different interesting things in Scripture, we can follow our curiosities. But church, only follow your curiosities as far as it produces in you humility. Because this star is leading us to Jesus. The point of this text is Jesus. 
I've heard sermons and I've read articles and listened to podcasts where all they do is talk about the natural phenomenon of the star and they leave out what the star is doing. Notice what the star is doing. It's leading the nations of the earth, pagan, Gentile, non-God-fearing people to Jesus, the Son, to worship. God commands nature. God draws the nations. Different tongues, different tribes, different religions, different people. And we need to find encouragement and hope in that. That when it seems like, like people are playing with the occult, when people are worshiping false gods, when people are dabbling in false religion, God can intersect them in that place and still lead them to himself, to the worship of Jesus Christ. I want us to notice that in the wise men in the star. And so that's kind of the, the dynamics of the text here. So the wise men come to Jerusalem and, and they go to Jerusalem because they think if there's a new king of the Jews, he's going to be born in Jerusalem, the, the holy city of the Jews. So they waltz into Jerusalem where Herod is the king of the Jews and they come to Herod and they're assuming that this new king is, is going to inherit the throne of Herod, that he's Herod's heir and Herod is on board with this. So they come to Herod We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. We're in verse 3. Of course he was troubled, right? He's paranoid. He doesn't want to lose his position, his power, his prestige. They came and they said, we saw the star that the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's thinking, no, I'm king of the Jews. Is there a new one coming? Is this Old Testament prophecy about this messianic king coming true? I better put that to an end. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was troubled because he gathered, he assembled all the chief, as it says in verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod wasn't a great Jew. He didn't know the Old Testament text well enough to know that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. Same with the wise men. They followed the star as far as they could, and then they stopped in Jerusalem, assuming that the, that the new king would be born in Jerusalem. So they knew some things about Scripture. They didn't know it detailed. Herod didn't know that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. The wise men didn't know that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod surrounds his people, and he says, hey, there, there's this sign, there's this star that's leading these people these pagans, these Gentiles to worship Jesus, the new king of the Jews. Tell me about this. Where is he to be born? Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's hearing this. There's this prophecy in the Old Testament from Micah that This new king is coming, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Remember, the Old Testament prophesies that one of David's descendants will rule forever. He will be the Messiah. And so Herod's hearing this, the city of David. There's there's this child who has been born, and, and the stars are being commanded by God to draw people to worship this this child who they're saying is going to be the king of the Jews, but I'm the king of the Jews. And listen to how it describes this new leader king. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, like a shepherd, leading his people to the green pasture and to the still waters. And so Herod is hearing this. Verse 7, Then Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. 
So he pulls these wide men to himself. When did you see it in the sky? He's trying to put the pieces together. He wants to figure out how old this child is so that he can snuff out this potential rebellion. We'll look more into that next week. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem. So, so he learns this child is to be born in Bethlehem, so he sends the wise men. You came to Jerusalem seeking him. He's actually born in Bethlehem. The people who know the Old Testament told me that. So go to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, that's King Herod, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So now we're understanding the text of it, right? Herod's paranoid, Herod's ambitious and suspicious. Those are two very dangerous things to mix together. Ambition is good, godly ambition is good, but selfish ambition and and worldly suspicion, those two things combined are lethal and deadly. So church, fan into flame holy ambition, but where selfish ambition and human suspicion coexist, be very careful. Pay attention to that. Watch out for it. That's Herod. These guys come to him. They say there's this new king. Jealousy starts stirring in him. He's, he's ambitious to hold power to his throne, and he's suspicious of others, so he sends the wise men, go find him, and then come back and tell me so that I can worship him. You think Herod's request is honest? Does Herod want to actually go and worship Jesus? No, we're going to learn next week that he wanted to kill Jesus, that he wanted to completely snuff out this potential threat. We'll get into that next week. But this is where we're at in this story. So the wise men come into the presence of King Herod. They listen to his instructions and they go to do what he tells them to do. We don't know what was going on in the wise men's head and heart as they were in the presence of the greatness of Herod. Herod was great. He was a great public figure. I mean, not great in the sense of good, but he was a powerful person. He, he's, one of those presence, he's one of those persons who being in his presence would cause you to do something. Probably create some kind of fear and anxiety because if you looked at him the wrong way or if he thought that you were trying to take him down, he would take you down and he had the power to do so. So the wise men come into his presence. He gives them the command, go and find this child and then report back to me. Verse 10. When they saw the star, so they're leaving Jerusalem, they come back outside, they see the star... And they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God has showed us the star again. He's going to now lead us to the place where this Messiah is being born. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Somehow the star led them to Jesus. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now let's talk about the application. So once we understand kind of the dynamics of the text, what does it look like to apply this? Church, let me ask you, how do you respond to the presence of King Jesus? How do you respond to the presence of King Jesus? There's multiple ways that we can respond to his presence. In fact, I I wrestled with this a lot this last week. I I really wanted to use this passage to point us to that there's one proper way to respond to the presence of King Jesus, but I think there's multiple ways. We can come to Jesus as we are. He welcomes us rejoicing. He welcomes us mourning. He, He embraces our emotions. He embraces our different approaches. 
But in this text, I do think it shows us a proper response to King Jesus. This doesn't need to be always, but I think it needs to be often. Look at how the, how the wise men respond. They enter the house, they see Jesus, and they fell down and worshiped. That's one of the first ways, church, that we ought to respond to the presence of King Jesus. Not with insecurity, not with inferiority, not with superiority. We don't try and make ourselves look better in front of Jesus. We don't try and self-deprecate ourselves and make ourselves look humbler, kind of like this false pride thing in front of Jesus. We come to Jesus as we are, and if we're genuinely, truly in the presence of Jesus, we, like the wise men, ought to fall down in humble worship. Fall down in humble worship. Church, when was the last time that you physically humbled yourself before Jesus? That you physically kneeled down before your Lord and your King as a, as a physical sign and reminder that you are humbled before this great King. That in the presence of the King, we are on our knees, we are on our faces. Throughout the Old Testament, it talks about when people came into the presence of God, they fell face down in the presence of the Holy God. Here, the wise men, these, these pagan Gentiles, come into the presence of Jesus and they fall down in worship. They bow in humble reverence. Church, this Christmas season, this Advent season, can you find time, can you make space to bow down before the king. Yes, yes, your heart just kind of symbolically, spiritually bowing down before him, but what about physically? I encourage you, church, this Advent season, to find a time and a space and go lay down face first in the presence of God. Find a place and go kneel in the presence of your king. It's so good for your soul. I've had a few experiences where I was just wrestling with God about different things and, and in going through scriptures, reminded of his greatness. And I've just, I've just gone out in the woods by myself and laid down flat on my face. And I can't tell you what that does for my heart to remember that, that I am small and yet God embraces me and he graces me with his presence. I think the next way that we see humble worship in this text is that they give from gratitude. So they enter the house, they fall down in worship, and then opening their treasures, they had treasures with them, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was a gift, gold was a gift appropriate for a king. I mean, it was, it was currency, so it was a gift that Joseph and Mary could use. They could trade it in financially. They could trade it for things to help provide for Jesus. So it had practical value, had monetary value, but it also was this gold is symbolic for kingship, for royalty. Frankincense was, a, was an incense that was often used in temple worship. Frankincense communicated worship of the gods. So they pull out frankincense symbolically saying, this baby, this child has divine quality. We want to worship him. And then myrrh was often used for embalming. We don't know if this is exactly why they pulled out myrrh or not, but maybe this is symbolic or prophetic of Jesus' future death, of him being placed in the tomb for three days before he rose again. 
Frankincense and myrrh are also very practical gifts. They, they worked as medicine and, and healing balm in the first century in this culture. So, so the wise men, they give generously from gratitude, some extravagance, right? They're just giving. When we enter the presence of Jesus, when we are, we, when we are, when we are struck with the glory of God, do we give That's what we see the wise men do. They respond by giving. They gave extravagantly. They also gave practically. Frankincense and myrrh, practical gifts that Mary and Joseph could use to care for this child. Years back when Brittany and I had Avery, our sister-in-law, flew to see us from the West Coast, and she came bearing a very practical gift similar. The modern day is this, butt paste. I just want to say butt paste in church. She came and she brought this for us, and it was a practical gift. She gave, she was excited to meet our daughter Avery. She brought us healing balm. This is what the wise men gave to Mary and Joseph. They gave from gratitude. They gave extravagantly, but also practically. Church, when you engage with the heavenlies, when you are in the presence of Jesus, do you give from gratitude? When we pass that offering plate or when you give online, it's not out of guilt or compulsion. It shouldn't be, at least. The scriptures tell us not to give that way. If you give because you feel like you're supposed to, I'm going to challenge you to stop giving. That's weird, right? Like, if, you, if you're giving, I don't even know if this is right, so maybe we'll just discard this part of the sermon. But if you give guilty or you feel like this gets me more favor with God, check your heart. And maybe pause on giving. I don't know if this is right or not. I'll say it and then we can talk about if it's right or not later. Pause on giving and pray and ask God to change your heart about giving because he wants you to give from a heart of joy and gratitude. Okay, so when that plate comes or when you go online, if you feel, why do I have to do this? Maybe just don't put it in. Say, God, would you do something with my heart because I'm not feeling right? I mean, the wise men came and they, they gave. They opened up their treasures. What are your treasures, church? What are you holding on to? The wise men had a long trip back home to the east. They could have used that gold and traded in, not for gas, for their camels, hay for their camels, which worked like gas to fuel them to get them back east. They could have traded their gold in, practical purposes to get where they were going, They could have traded their frankincense and myrrh in, traded out for something that they needed for their long journey, but they opened up their treasures and they gave to the Lord with gratitude. Then lastly, they shift allegiance. How do you respond when you're in the presence of Jesus? Do you shift allegiance from the world and from from earthly authorities to heavenly authorities? Look at what they did in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Again, let's notice here that God works in mysterious ways, that he is a worker of miracles. He can speak to people in dreams. He's doing this around the world now. If you talk to missionaries, they're saying, Jesus appears to people in dreams and reveals himself to them. And here, in a dream, God warns the wise men not to return to Herod. So the scriptures tell us to submit to our governing authorities, that God puts human authorities in place, and we as Christians are submit to submit to those authorities. That's the normal mode of operation. But here, we see that God communicates to them to actually disrespect a human authority, to disobey a human authority. Herod had given them this command, return and tell me where Jesus is. 
God showed up in a dream and said, don't go to Herod, go this way. I don't know what that means for us other than we need to shift our allegiance from the world to Jesus. And scriptures tell us to submit to our governing authorities insofar as they don't contradict God's word and will and way. Jesus shows up and he tells them, go this other way. They shifted their loyalty, their allegiance. They put God's revealed will and to them it came in a dream. To us, it's here in the word and in the community. They put that above their allegiance to King Herod. You, you see the difference of how they responded to these different presences of these two different kings? Herod the king, they come into his presence, he gives them instruction and they go and they do what he tells them to do. Jesus, they come into the house and they see baby Jesus and they fall down and worship. They open up their treasures and they give. And then they shift their allegiances from following the ways of the world to following the express, revealed, spoken word of God. Church, how about you? This Advent season, when you hear Christmas songs on the radio, when you hear them at church, when you gather in community groups or you gather on Sundays, are you going through the motions? Or are you remembering that you're in the presence of the living God? And will we respond to King Jesus by bowing in reverence and by giving from gratitude and by shifting our allegiance to him and him alone? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for coming to rule and reign as king. And not like King Herod, not paranoid not suspicious, not filled with human ambition. For you ruled an upside-down kingdom, a subversive kingdom, one where when, when we're slapped on the cheek, we're told to turn the other. When our coat is taken from us by our enemies, we are told to give them another. One where we are told to love our enemies. So Jesus, we thank you for being a good shepherd king, for ruling and reigning with true justice and peace and righteousness. As we sit here and now respond in your very presence, I pray that you would empower us to be a people of reverent fear and worship. May we fall down before you. May we open up our treasures and give back to you. And may our allegiance be with you and you alone. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.